This podcast is from the RAND Corporation, a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision-making through research and analysis. Visit www.rand.org to learn more about us and to explore RAND's free online library of more than 10,000 policy reports and commentaries. Ladies and gentlemen, the Executive Director of Development for the RAND Corporation, Navina Panasami. In the 1960s, most research on computers centered on how to ease daily tasks. But RAND was also exploring how to develop both hardware and software capable of self-direction and of learning. Today, artificial intelligence promises to fundamentally change the way humans live, work, and interact with one another. But some great minds have raised concerns. Stephen Hawking warns that artificial intelligence will be either the best or the worst thing ever to happen to humanity. Um, so we're going to talk about this tonight and here to moderate our discussion of RAND research on the role of AI in society is Dave Baiocchi. Um, Dave is the Director of Design at the Party RAND Graduate School. And our panelists are Oshande Oshaba, who is an engineer at RAND, and Bill Welzer, Director of the Engineering and Applied Sciences Department of RAND. The stage is yours. Thanks. <laughs> So we're really excited to be here, and thank you all for coming. Um, I thought I'd talk a little bit about how we've got about an hour together, and so we're going to spend about the first half of that hour just laying out some basic concepts. What is artificial intelligence, and how is it manifesting itself in our everyday life, and then try to explore some of the policy topics. But we really want this to be a discussion, so we're going to spend the first half of this session um, sort of moderating a discussion amongst ourselves, and then we're going to open it up to questions because I'm sure there's a lot of, it's clear that there's a lot of mm -hmm. interest and thirst to talk about this. So that's the plan for tonight. Um, you know, as I was preparing for this, I, I realized that, you know, AI is, is everywhere. It's in the news. It's being baked into the products, even the toys that I'm thinking about for my kids this year. It's in Hollywood everywhere. And so I guess I want to start with Bill on this. Why is this? Like, why now? Why, why is this explosion happening? Right. So first of all, good evening to everyone. Um, it's a really good question. Um, as Navina mentioned, people have been thinking about AI for quite a while. Um, but it actually turned out that the thing that they were lacking was the application. Um, and if uh, many of you remember about 10 years ago, the big phrase was big data. Um, and that kind of rose upon the scene. And for the, for the last decade, we've heard a lot about big data. And it turned out that big data really didn't go anywhere. Um, and it was a lot of hype about the collection and storage of lots of data. The reason it didn't go anywhere was because the applications weren't there. And this is where AI comes in. Um, because as you get this great amount of data, um, you start thinking about things to do with it. And it takes a lot of different steps to do those things. And it takes humans a lot of time to take those steps. Um, so if you can automate this, and if you can make it smart, so it can make its own decisions as you're trying to work through that data, um, then you can come up with some really amazing things. And that's why artificial intelligence has really been booming over the past two to three years. So it's, it's the role of big data that actually generated this need for um, this mechanism that's going to make it um, more useful. Okay. Yes. And, and it sounds like the con what happened with big data was there was a conflation between data and information. They thought that when you have this, the reason to collect all the data was because you could get more insight from the data, but there was no thought given to how much, how difficult it is to get information, squeeze information out of data. And so when they talked about big data, they were really referring to artificial intelligence. They were talking about how to, how do we get insights from the data we collect. And so it feels like a natural progression from big data to AI. That's a great point. All right, so I want to lay out a little bit of context for those people who maybe aren't super technical in the room. Um, you know, before coming to Rand, Oshande, I just want to give a little bit of context. You were a researcher at USC. Mm. And you actually did a lot of work that led to patents and machine learning. Mm. So this was was your life before you came <laughs> here. I'm I'm hoping I'm I'm wondering if you can give us a little bit of sense of what are some everyday examples of where AI is right now. Maybe ranging from the simple and most straightforward use mm. to air, to applications that are maybe a little bit more complex or mm. complicated. Just to set the stage here. So I think that's actually a difficult question because there's a lot of places where AI mediates our interaction with information, and so an example would be well. 
how do I pick my dates on OkCupid? That's <laughs> it is determined by an artificial intelligence system. Um, you can think about um, how do I pick my next movie? How does Amazon know that I want to read this type of book since I've bought these types of things in the past? Um, Netflix does it. All the recommendation systems you've seen in the past do this. Um, Facebook, for example, when it wants to determine what's a trending news article or trending piece of um, piece of um, interaction, that's all done by artificial intelligence. Um, in the more obscure domains, you have things like algorithms used in um, used by quants on, on on Wall Street. How do they determine how to what to buy next and how often to buy it? And so you have things like high frequency trading. Going to this question of um, taking the human out of the loop and doing things quickly. High-frequency trading is done by algorithms because they can react faster to changes in the market. Um, I, I think that sets uh, Do you have any other examples you'd like to well, add? I, I mean, just one thing that, uh, that I found useful is not everyone knows what an algorithm is. Mm, um, and uh, so we talk a lot about <laughs> algorithms, and, um, and we'll throw that around, and we'll, we'll use that kind of interchangeably with artificial intelligence. And you'll hear things like machine learning and mm. deep learning and whatnot. Um, I think it's important to share two things. So one is that artificial intelligence is really this big um, space um, in which there's lots of different kinds of um, approaches. So you'll hear deep learning, machine learning, mm. things that are scary like whole brain emulation, um, those sorts of things. That's all considered artificial intelligence. What's driving those things are usually algorithms. And the... It, very complicated math, but you can think of an algorithm as like a recipe. Um, it's a set of steps that you need to follow to accomplish something. Um, and, and then the math and the, and the engineering is what goes in to you know, make that recipe work. Um, but just to, sorry, just yeah. to. And building up on that point, so you have algorithms for doing simple things like calculating your tax burden. But how, think about the algorithms in artificial intelligence as algorithms that are teaching a synthetic system to learn from past data. Right. Now, that's a difficult thing. That's where all the hype is behind the algorithms. That's where most of the IP in the AI age is coming from. How do you teach a system to learn quicker from, from data it observed? Okay, so we're going to come back to that in a moment, but I want to press back on the, go back to the, the, the use cases or the examples. In your estimation, sort of what is, what's the cutting edge AI problem that we're trying to solve today? Like, wh what's that cutting edge application that we're just on the verge mm. of being able to crack? I would say, um, in my opinion, um, language and understanding language is, is the diff one of the more difficult um, applications of AI. Uh, Google has their, their most, one of their most advanced AI systems essentially dedicated to uh, machine translation, translated from one language to another, because we use language regularly and we think it's a simple thing. Babies learn it easily, but it's actually quite difficult. It, there are lots of rules, but then there are also lots of non-rules, exactly. And so it, it's, a, it's a pretty hard problem, and Google seems to have cracked it pretty darn well at this point. Mm. Um, if I had to think about another application... Oh, here's this one. Um, how do you forecast um, or at least understand human behavior ba based on the interactions online? Can you um, predict what group of people are going to become more, more interested in certain things versus the other thing? Human behavior is tough. It's, been, it's a tough not to crack with artificial intelligence methods. All right, that's really helpful. And I think for context, um, there's an article that's coming out in this week's New York Times mm. magazine that talks about the... Google. Yes, uh, exactly. Yeah, it came out this morning. Thing, right? think, so yeah. if you're interested in, and I just caught that before we, mm -hmm. before I came down here, I was doing my homework at the last minute. Um, all right. So before we transition into the policy stuff, I think it's important to bring Rand back into the conversation. Mm -hmm. What you know, we don't have people here who are developing cutting edge machine learning. Um, I'm sorry, I still do. I still do. I still do. So like. What is a place like RAND, what role do they play in this conversation? Mm. And what type of research is being done here on it? Sure. So I mean, one, of, one of RAND's values, and I'm sure everybody in this room is, is familiar, but one of our real core values is that we have this multidisciplinary research staff, which is approaching 800 um, professional researchers right now. Mm -hmm. And so what we bring to this is that we're not only looking at uh, the computer code and looking at the, the detailed computer science, um, but we can also look at the human-machine interaction via the behavioral scientists. Um, we can think about application spaces like, um, you know, d discussions between nation states
States via our political scientists. Mm. Um, we can think, uh, you know, in the anthrop uh, anthropologist kind of space about how it affects the human condition. Mm. Um, and when you pull all those things together, we get a really rich perspective as to kind of the next steps that need to be taken, the gaps that are, exist in terms of understanding. Um, and then we want to try to inform those policymakers as best we can as to the decisions that they might want to make. Mm -hmm. um, it might not be surprising, but a lot of policymakers don't know a lot about uh, artificial <laughs> intelligence. Um, and uh, you, you want to be able to make it accessible um, mm. because it is such a wide, uh, large space um, that, that there are a lot of very smart people working in. But there are people making decisions that need um, to feel that it's accessible. and, and So there's a bridging, a bridging function there, yeah. right, to, that can bridge across the technology and the policy yeah. and all of the mm -hmm. academic disciplines. For context, um, when I go to um, engineering um, conferences, AI conferences, they are all very comfortable talking about the methods, the algorithms, and how to improve this or that part of the algorithm. But when it comes to dealing with algorithms as socio-technical systems, how they affect human and daily living, there's a little bit of a more stunted, stunted um, understanding of how that would work. And so how do algorithms, AI, affect the economy? That's a question that's hard to answer from just an engineering point of view, which is why Rand comes in here. We have engineers who understand algorithms and AI and can actually build them, but we also have economists right next door who can talk to them and say, okay, when you build something like this, it's likely to have these types of downstream effects on, on, in the, on the economy, on the future of work, on um, all sorts of things. Wonderful. I mean, there are a few places in the world, right, that could actually tackle something that complex. Mm -hmm. All right, so let's start talking about policy. One of the reasons I think that we convened tonight was because you guys have done a lot of research on this recently, and so I wanted to focus on one of those mm -hmm. um, pieces of research. Um, you know, these, this artificial intelligence, it, it is, it is the artifacts that humans are designing. It's, it, is, it is things that we are making. And just like everything else that humans design, mm -hmm. the rule or the disposition or the bias or the lens or whatever of the mm -hmm. designer gets baked into the product. And so I'm hoping you can talk a little bit about what does it mean to have bias in AI? Mm -hmm. And I'll hold my follow-up questions okay. until we get that. That's, um, let's start there. Okay, when we talk about bias, um, we can think about it from two points of views. Um, like I mentioned, algorithms, AI systems learn from data. Now, is the data wholly objective? Is it a wholly objective representation of the world as it is? That's not always true. And so when you're learning from data, you're, if you're learning automatically from data, you're basically learning all the biases that's baked into the data. There's recent work on... Can you give a little bit more context on what you mean by learn by data? Talk mm. about how the, okay. the systems are trained. Okay, um, I guess in a supervised learning... Well, even in a supervised learning... Well, let's stick with supervised learning. In a supervised learning context, you're trying to get an AI system to learn the relationships between, between the inputs and outputs, desired outputs, such that you can forecast for new examples what the output should be. And the only way you can do that is inductively from the data you've seen in the past, so past examples. I don't know if I, I could go into more detail, but it gets more technical. So, at that so point. what you're saying is you're you're feeding in answers that that you know the answer. Exactly. Feeding questions you know the exactly. answer to, and you're yeah. making sure that the algorithm's yes. making the right decision. Yeah. And you're tweaking it to make sure it learns eventually how to get the right answer on that data. And, and that that's training. that's what you're referring to as the process of training. Yes, the algorithm. exactly. Okay. Exactly. Keep going. So the problem is when the data contains biases already then basically you're, tr you're training the black box to reproduce those biases. Think about the way we use language right now. There was a paper that came out this summer um, from, from Princeton. They showed essentially that if you train an algorithm to, to try to understand language, it understands all the biases in the way we use languages. So when you say, okay, things like he pronouns, male pronouns, they are more likely to associate those with jobs that are associated with males in our use of the language. So things like doctors, engineers, and anything male-oriented. And when you say things like nurses, it's more likely to understand that based on our past use of the word nurse, it's more likely to be a, a female as opposed to a male. So it's basically just reproducing all the biases we've, we've baked into the data. That's one version of bias. The other version of bias is when the actual structure of the, of the algorithm is making assumptions about the way humans work. And it's, that's just baked into the structure of the, of the artificial intelligence. There is very little, it's going to be hard to undo those types of biases. At least with data, we can just say we just collect better data in the future. So, so I'm I, about to ask a tough question, so you should. No, I just think a really practical example of this, though, is Microsoft um, wanted to test, uh, test out how, um, if left untrained, 
how an artificial intelligence agent might actually act. And so they put out this bot, the, the mm -hmm. Microsoft Tay. Um, mm -hmm. They put it on Twitter. And if anyone remembers this, um, all the users started interacting with it and um, quickly learned that they could actually teach it um, maybe things that we wouldn't prefer it to learn. Um, and pretty soon you had a very um, biased, um, uh, racist, <laughs> uh, terrible entity um, uh, that was sitting there on Twitter. Um, they've learned from that, and they've recent, recently released uh, a newer version that kind of uh, actually uses amazingly enough, uses artificial intelligence to identify when someone is trying to um, uh, trick the system. Uh, but that was a really good example mm -hmm. of, if left untrained, how things can go awry pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. So you started to answer the next question, which is, how do we detect when this stuff's going to happen? And then how do we start designing this out, this bias out into the out of future systems? I want to, I'm somewhat hesitant about... Um, um, learning when algorithms are biased because often bias is a reflection of social norms. We want to be able to, so in, in the case of the TAY system, you're trying to teach the system that certain, certain ways of communicating are racist. That's kind of unambiguous in that situation, but in other situations, whose social norms get to decide mm -hmm. what gets baked into the right. system? So it, it, it's a hard question, <laughs> and I recognize, you know, it's hard. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I think there's two things. I mean, one of the things, and this is what started Ashande and I on this work, was that, um, so in one of my roles at RAND, I, I do a lot of our hiring uh, for, for uh, our engineers and applied scientists, and it struck me that the computer scientists that we were looking at hiring were all coming from the same kind of social and economic backgrounds. Mm -hmm. And Ashande and I started talking about this, and we are like, well, the people who are building these algorithms, mm -hmm. the people who are designing the AI, they are all coming from those same backgrounds. Mm -hmm. um, they don't have a diverse, necessarily a diverse set of perspectives. They may not be out to cause evil, right? And they're likely, mm -hmm. they're not likely to be out to cause evil, but instead they may just have inherent kind of uh, interpretations of the world that don't apply universally. Mm -hmm. um, so that was the first thing that we, that kind of got us started on this. Can you give a concrete example of that? Yeah, please. So there was a, there's a simulation that was being built by one of our scientists, and she's super smart, but in the process of building the simulation, it's about how, um, households um, deal with money in terms of health. She made the assumption, without even thinking twice about it, that the male in the household is always the head of the household. Hmm. <laughs> Those are simple assumptions that come naturally often, but are, when we, on, on further thought, they are, they're probably um, biased. Yeah, so the second, it's great example. <laughs> uh, the second thing that I wanted to raise was um, just this this idea that bias we always take it as something negative um, mm -hmm. it's not always has doesn't always have a negative outcome um, but oftentimes uh, bias can lead to error mm. and if you don't actually understand the system um, then you don't actually know how to identify whether or not there's an error and so right now uh, AI systems are used to judge people's uh, creditworthiness and if you ask, in many cases, uh, uh, if you ask the bank, why was I not approved for this loan, they actually can't tell you. Mm -hmm. um, our system told you that you weren't approved. We, we guess it could be one of these few things, but um, yeah, it's kind of in the box. Mm -hmm. um, and that is, uh, that's a frustrating situation to be in because you don't n have a basis from which to choose mm -hmm. whether or not an error has happened. So we've joked that, you know, there should be very much like the GMO labels or other types mm -hmm. of labels that you should have like an AI inside <laughs> kind of label um, so that you can know when a decision that's affecting your life has actually been, um, mm. you know, is actually the product of something that is algorithmically mm. based instead mm. of a human sitting there looking through all of your, mm. you know, materials mm -hmm. and deciding something yes or no. Mm. So you're getting at, I think, which is, at the larger question here, which is how do we trust machines to do decision-making, right? This is all about making decisions. Mm. And essentially, this is a question of, you know, how do we pop the hood open and check out the machinery inside to understand what the, what the decision calculus looks like? Mm. The, the Intel inside, you know, mm. sort of design feature is one indicator on whether or not there is a human or a machine on the inside. What other types of, how else can we 
can we help build trust or, or build transparency mm. into these systems? What what sort of design features are we looking for? Um, so in the in the in the realm of creating accountable algorithms, there are three basic approaches. Don't use algorithms at all. <laughs> <laughs> have all decisions made by humans. That might have been feasible 20, 30 years ago when there was small enough data that everything could be done by a human. That's not feasible anymore, especially with the Internet of, with the internet of Things. We have these huge streams of data coming in. There's no way a human is going to sit there and make the decisions. The other approach is exactly what he mentioned, the idea of um, labels, um, algorithmic labels. Tell people this is what's going on here. We have an algorithm. Even, even if you don't, don't know the details of the algorithm, an algorithm is making the decisions here. Um, it, it turns out that's actually quite powerful. Um, if, you think about, if you think about it, we don't often know when, when, our, when our information is mediated by, by algorithms. And we're not sure how, to, how critically to consume those information pieces. The third approach is this idea which the EU has kind of adhered to. They, they've kind of signed on to make the algorithms transparent and interpretable, i.e., instead of having a black box, have a gray box that you can shepherdize your information, your decisions, back from the output through the system and say, this is why I made these decisions. That's actually hard, but there's a lot of research going into that nowadays, trying to make these systems more interpretable. I mean, I mean the, the, the problem with the transparency one is that it, you have to have a fundamental understanding of mm. what's happening to be able to interpret kind of what happened, if that makes mm. sense, right? And so, uh, you know, a simple version of that is being able to ask it questions, mm. um, being able to interrogate it like you would a human who's made a decision and have it respond with something that's not programmed, right? That's not from a set list, but instead mm. is very specific to your um, uh, to mm. your situation. I think that's what builds trust. Um, one thing that I, I think that you, we've gotten through 20 minutes of uh, talking about artificial intelligence without talking about sentient robots that are going to take <laughs> over the world. And, um, and it, this is usually like the first thing that people want to talk about. Um, yeah. <laughs> well, sorry, that's very good. We, we alluded to it. We biased you. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> Um, but but a lot of the I think it's I think it's interesting that you know the discussions that that go on in the kind of the public circles are about how do you trust the robot, right? Mm -hmm. And it's like this kind of physical instantiation mm -hmm. of of the artificial intelligence. But it really is how do you trust the software? Mm -hmm. um, because the robot, like if the robot's you know not smart, not learning, then it's probably pretty easy to trust it. Pretty easy to get frustrated with it and whatnot. Mm -hmm. I mean, I trust Siri. Um, she doesn't always work, right? Mm -hmm. but, I, but I trust Siri um, that she's going to give me the website that you know, I'm asking for or whatnot. Mm -hmm. um, but as it becomes a, more, uh, a system that's more like me or you talking, uh, how do I build that trust with something that is intangible? Hmm. Um, and it's just a big question. It oh. strikes me that as these machines become more and more human-like, it's the... You know, now, if I want to know if I trust a machine, I could open it up and look at the code, right? So it's some, something that's very mechanical. But as they become more human, we're going to build trust via more human-like trust-building right. mechanisms. Mm. We will have to. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I do want to push back a little bit on, on the idea of... <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> on the idea of interpretability. So think about how humans interact. Mm -hmm. When you ask a human, why did you make that decision? They give you a series of justifications. It could be rationalizations. It's not necessarily the reason why they made those decisions. We have a huge literature on, um, on biases in human decision-making. The same thing with algorithms. When you talk about interpretability, it's easier for designers to in talk about interpretability in terms of rationalization as opposed to the real reasons why the decisions were made. So things are going to get a lot more hairy before they get nice and fixed. Okay, so um, I'm going to finish up here by talking a little bit about sort of the last policy question that, that comes up frequently, which is sort of the future of work mm. in AI. Um, where are we headed on this? Are, are the machines going to take over our jobs? Mm. Uh, well, the Queen Elizabeth, supposedly, the Queen Victoria, supposedly, she supposedly refused to grant a patent on a particular machine because she was worried they'll take her jobs away from her subjects. Mm. This is in the 1800s. In the 1800s. <laughs> yeah, that's, <laughs> correct. Yeah, that's correct. So People are wondering, <laughs> Queen Victoria, what? No, Queen Victoria, uh, back yeah. in the 1800s. So it's a, it's, it's a recurring theme. It's, it's been going on ever since you started using machines to do work. 
And somehow we still have situations of, we still have a 4, is it 4.55% unemployment in the country? Even if, it's not a straightforward question that when, uh, when machines come in, they automatically take our jobs. We, so we morph over time. Let me ask you this. Which, what aspects of our jobs are going to be the last mm. to be um, affected or taken over by artificial intelligence? Do you know? Yeah, so, I, I mean, there, there's, there's a lot of, I just want to, touch a little bit on the point that Ashani was talking about. So there's a lot of discussion of, of full jobs and professions mm. being replaced by, by artificial intelligence. And it really, what's proven out over time is that it's tasks. It's tasks within a profession that are taken over, and it's usually to make that profession uh, quicker, more mm. efficient, uh, whatever it, it might be. And as humans, we adapt quickly. We add in more tasks because we mm. love tasks. <laughs> um, we add in more tasks into that, into that profession. We, we adapt. Um, I, I think that uh, that's fine. I'll answer your other question. But the concerning thing to me is that with a lot of the growth that we're seeing right now, we're seeing mm. a, you know, jobless growth. Um, and it is due to a lot of these automated systems. So the going away, you know, the, uh, certain professions going away, I think that's going to take a lot mm. more time than the kind of clearing of, of new spaces via jobless growth. Mm. Um, and that's more concerning to me than, you know, profession X losing their job because a computer is uh, going to take it. Mm -hmm. um, to answer your other, to answer your question about where those spaces we should be most um, interested in looking, um, there's some work done here at RAND on mm. surprise. By yourself. Uh, you did it. <laughs> um, but on occupation. I didn't set him up for this. <laughs> yeah, sorry. But it actually turns out to be a really great framework. Um, it's uh, an occupational surprise and thinking about how you compare occupations um, and how much how prepared they are for mm. the, um, the uncertain, right? And um, if you take... Uh, what you posit as as the nice um, binning for for these uh, uh, for these occupations, which is on one axis, if we can you know draw this on one axis, you have how much time you have to make a decision, right? Um, so from very you know seconds or instant to hours and days, um, with the other axis being um, you know the chaos of the environment, right, and how repeatable that chaos is. And you start to plot occupations. It turns out the occupation that I think is probably safest from being automated is like kindergarten teacher, <laughs> right? Because, because little kids bring in lots of chaos, and, um, and they, they're always throwing something new, right? And it's very hard to design a system that, that is able to absorb that newness um, in a chaotic environment where you're making decisions in a second-to-second kind of um, uh, you know, uh, regime. Mm -hmm. um, the, the jobs that are, if we wanted to think about professions that are kind of most, I think, on the next... Uh, on the on the near horizon, most at risk are things like some some that we consider white collar jobs like accounting, mm. um, where there there are very straightforward rules in place. Um, and I apologize to any accountants in the room. I'm sorry, but there are very straightforward rules in place that you can design around. But again, it would be that it would be those rote tasks with, within the profession of accounting. Absolutely, right? like absolutely. The, the accountants then would then the part that's gonna that's still gonna prevail is the is the deep problem solving and wrestling mm. with complexity. So this is a totally a disruption, not a replacement that, that mm. I'm I'm stating. And and it um, we see that when these um, particular fields are disrupted, um, that usually the companies just move that um, move that employee or move that set of employees down the value chain and mm. start offering more services yeah. um, to their clients. I want to add to the to the point on chaos. Um, recently the Baidu chief scientific officer, Andrew Eng, he, he was talking about what jobs are safe and what jobs are not. And I was trying to see if his framing jives with our framing. And he basically found that jobs in which context switching doesn't happen often, so jobs in which you're always in the same frame. Think about um, factory workers. Same thing, there's no switching between different types of regimes of work. Those types of jobs, you can easily train a system because it's always the same thing to, to do. But when you're having to context switch, like the kindergarten teacher, like, um, say, a lawyer or, like, say, a researcher, you're having to context switch between different types of tasks, that context switching is hard to program away. Um, there's also, I think it's worth pointing out, um, some 
There's, this always comes up. It's a particular reference on the future of work study by um, Carl Benedict Fry and Osborne. They pointed to three dimensions that determine, mm -hmm. this is our competing framework, that determine whether a job is automatable, uh, how much perceptive manipulation is required to do the job, um, how much uh, social intelligence is required, and how much creative intelligence is, is required. Mm -hmm. Now, it's not doesn't seem to be a very... Um, robust framework when you think about the details, but it's also a useful framework to think of. All right, so before we transition to questions, I'm going to ask you two just one final question, which is that you're both researchers. You work mm -hmm. at RAND, right? Mm -hmm. If you had the next year funded to work specifically on this mm -hmm. topic, what are you tackling? How are you spending that next research dollar? Build more AI. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Um, I do want to be able to say something more definitive about the economic impact of AI, um, especially on the question of income inequality between um, creators of AI, artificial intelligence systems, and um, laborers. Like, what's the return to labor versus the return to AI capital? Um, I don't think we have a robust, a robust discussion on that so far. Um, did you have... Some. Yeah, I, mean, I would I would spend some time um, looking into the applications in the criminal justice system. Mm -hmm. um, there's uh, quite a few applications that have been adopted to include um, uh, things that are in, uh, really <laughs> informing, scarily enough, mm -hmm. informing sentencing, mm -hmm. um, and they found them to be error prone. Mm -hmm. uh, and I'd really like to dig into that. Um, just that that's a place where our data culture has actually not gathered mm. enough data. So going in, digging that, mm. digging that get data together, and then looking at why these systems are providing some some less than perfect uh, mm. uh, advice would mm -hmm. be nice. Mm -hmm. yeah. That's good. Can I add one more point? Sure. Um, so in in talking about biases, we have to talk about social norms. How do you teach a machine to learn social norms? And I, if I had to do like technical research, I would like to study training expert systems to learn social norms just from observing human interactions. Your next dissertation. Uh, I don't need another <laughs> one. <laughs> All right, so we're going to transition to questions. Nancy's going to give us some guidance here on, uh, on how to proceed. Yes, there's just a few rules. I know there's going to be a lot of questions, so I'm going to ask you all to just limit yourself to one question and try to make it a question, not a statement. And when we come to you, my colleague and I, please talk into the microphone. And I'm going to start over here. My question is very, very basic. I know nothing about this. <clears throat> what is the difference between information and data? Hmm. I'll take that. Um, data is just raw raw signals from the world. So what's the temperature today? What am I wearing? Just inputs, basically. Information is, is more refined information, is more refined data, essentially. It's saying, okay, I know that the price of the stock is this today. I can predict. I know that in the future, it's more likely to be this or this. That's kind of more, it's less about just sensory input and more about, say, relational, inform re relational data going forward. So... So one construct that we've talked about here around is the concept of a data supply chain. So if you think about a, a material supply chain, right. that's taking ore from the ground, turning it into maybe an ingot, which then gets turned into screws, and the screws mm -hmm. then go into some larger product. You could run that analogy for the same thing with data, yes. right? There's all these signals mm -hmm. you're collecting. It gets turned into information, and then the ultimate jewel is intelligence, right. information you can take action on. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Okay. Um, I'd like to push at the point Vina raised at the beginning uh, Stephen Hawking's comment, and Elon Musk said the same thing, mm. that AI and its development, which is largely unchecked, mm -hmm. and it's growing exponentially, could be existential to the human era. There was even a book written called Our Final Invention, mm. Artificial Intelligence and the End of the Human Era. Mm. They weren't talking about tasks and jobs. They were talking about the place of humans mm. in, in, in the world. So I don't know if you I'd like to either push at that a little bit. So, so I, it, it's really interesting. So uh, this, uh, you know, a lot of luminaries got together and wrote an open letter about the risks of artificial intelligence. That included Stephen Hawking and Bill Gates and Elon Musk, et cetera. Um, uh, I think that it served that letter served its purpose to have people pay attention to what was happening in the research spaces um, because some some very forward thinking work was happening unchecked. Um, but it, it obviously hasn't made them want to abandon it 
as um, Elon Musk's Tesla uses an autopilot, uh, which is based on AI. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, my my thought about um, kind of whether it's existential or not is it, we've thought about that a lot. I don't have an answer. I do think it's interesting as we collect more data on ourselves, it's as if we're trying to make ourselves more robotic, more machine-like, and yet we're trying to design our machines to be more human. Mm-hmm. And um, it's, it's really, it's a very interesting tension um, that I'm not sure that we've, we've fully come to grips with yet. Uh, I, would, uh, I would really like for um, the public to have a, a better understanding of where AI touches their lives mm. today. Mm. Um, because I think that as that understanding grows, there would be demands for um, proper checks on safety and ethics, um, fairness and mm. equity. Uh, and that is not happening right now. And it's mostly not happening because we're just not sure, right? We're not sure when we're actually dealing with a backdoor system that is all AI and it's just a human telling me it, mm. right? Um, so it's a very good question. Lots of concern about it. Um, Can I add to the point? Yeah, I was just going to say <laughs> it's something we've thought a lot about. It's it's something that's very hard to inform policy decision makers on. So we mm-hmm. choose to inform um, them by just kind of trying to set the stage of understanding, mm-hmm. right, mm-hmm. Um, and give them kind of the realm of possible. Mm-hmm. Also, to add to the point, I, I do believe that letters served a purpose up until recently in the in the um, engineering community, it wasn't so kosher to talk about the safety concerns around the algorithms they were designing. It was one of those things where the gatekeepers, the professors in academia, anytime they heard anybody refer to safety problems, they were dismissed out of hand. Now, that's largely a past regime. We have outfits like um, Horvitz's AI Institute in Stanford. We have outfits like OpenAI that are openly, like actively tackling the questions of safety. So as a, as a clarion call, I believe the letter served this purpose. But as a, as a bit of um, for causing panic, I, I think it's probably not the best, um, the best approach. Our next question's over here. Uh, interested in the General, uh, special versus generalized, you know, questions, but focusing on the specialized AI and kind of want to drill down into a, a little of your points about, um, you use the word disruption in industry, and it, I would say it bothers me a little bit. I mean, because the specialized conversation, I mean, the two examples, okay, we're, we're talking about the the concern maybe in the generalized world of, of self-driving cars and the worry about whether the car hits the mother with the baby or the 10 people question, where every year a million people die in auto accidents, and that's because of human drivers. But the one part of the question, but, but back to your disruptive, you know, minimizing it, you know, we have 5 million truck drivers in the U.S. today. Mm-hmm. Uh, probably within three years, that's going to be disrupted to the point where where it'll take one truck driver to do the job of a hundred or a thousand, and that's not a good disruption. So I'm I'm pushing back a little bit to ask you to drill into those kind of mm-hmm. questions a little sure. bit more about how maybe the disruption is not good, but maybe good in the example of the million people. Sure. So disruption by no means is always good. I mean, there's, there's, it's not. <laughs> it's not always good. Um, I I think that uh, I think two things. So one. Um, uh, it's, it's going to be hard if, at the, right now, at the state level, they're having to approve the use of these vehicles. And if you can only long-range truck through one state and then you have to pick up a driver, um, it's not going to work very well. So I think that there's some logistical pieces to, to pull together um, there. The, the piece about um, the driver and whether they swerve to hit the school children or, or kill themselves against a tree, or uh, there's lots of different examples that people give. It, there's an interesting approach being taken right now, which is that they're crowdsourcing um, how humans, um, and they being Google and Uber and whatnot, are crowdsourcing how humans would react given certain situations and then pulling that together to kind of establish a baseline of a human reaction given a particular scenario. So there's not one um, programmer deciding, well, you know, here's the cost of a human life and here's the cost of a human child or something like that, and then making that decision for the car. It's actually being brought in mm-hmm. via um, you know, millions of drivers, actually, and how they would react. 
Uh, my question ties into the last discussion you had and the, the current question that was just asked. Uh, in a recent article this month out of Wharton, there was an article by Art Bilger talking about uh, disruption in unemployment. And he said that between 15% of our students not getting through high school, the disruption by technology, and not just interstate uh, truck drivers, mm -hmm. but taxi drivers and Uber drivers and other people where you don't go interstate, that we could look in 20 or 25 years at 30 to 40% unemployment. Mm. My question is this, if that's true, and I don't know if it is, is Rand doing a parallel research on how we uh, get out of that problem and get people to work? Mm. I, I don't know that it's, it's necessarily true that the introduction of new AI technology always necessarily leads to the destruction of jobs. There is definitely some shifting, for, but then the uh, introduction of artificial intelligence also creates new opportunities. Think about um, things like micro work. Um, the the only micro work, the only way um, the only way micro work has been possible is because artificial intelligence has enabled platforms for 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 coordinating those resources. So think about, when I say micro work, I mean things like Uber, um, Lyft, um, TaskRabbit, Amazon, Amazon Mechanical Turk. Those types of jobs would not be possible. Those types of work would not be possible if AI wasn't existing. So I, I, I suspect that in the future, even if, yes, there will be definitely jobs lost because of artificial intelligence, because of automation, but there are all these there are all these opportunities that would arise because artificial intelligence makes it possible. We don't have a clear sense of what those opportunities are because we have never lived through this type of thing in the past. It's a, this is fundamentally different from past regimes. But I, I think it's, it's, it's a bit too easy to say that we are going to definitely lose too many jobs because of artificial intelligence. So, so this is a really, I just want to, so this is a really hard question. Um, it is the question when it comes to the future of labor. Um, and it is something that we're, so um, at, at RAND, we are not tackling it head on right now. We're kind of grabbing little bits and pieces of it. We would love to tackle it head on. Um, but uh, we haven't had a client ask us to do that yet <laughs> um, because no one wants to own it. I mean, that really, that, just, to be, just to be honest about it. The benefits um, are diffuse. Yeah, but it's, it's, a really, it's a really big question. Um, I, you know, I think that, uh, we could sit here and project and, and, and guess as to what the future is going to be, but the pace at which things are changing right now makes it very hard to do that with any amount of certainty. Um, so I think that we have lots of tools in-house that if we laid, at, uh, laid them at this problem, we could probably come up with a nice uh, future couple future states of the world where you could mm -hmm. design around. Um, but we are not tackling that head-on right now. I just want to it's a great question. It is the question in that space. We have a question over here. Uh, hi. I got to, uh, as a official in the world of Go, the, the game, um, I got to witness close up some uh, the, the development of an AI Go player that seems like it will beat any human this spring. Mm -hmm. And from talking to the engineers involved and, and watching what was happening and hearing about their relatively brief history, of the project of trying to make that automatic Go player, uh, AlphaGo, um, it seems to me that it's not just the interaction with big data that has made the last two or three years different in AI, but the fact that the tools available and the understanding of how to use them um, is just way more effective than anything in the past. Hmm. A bright person with a decent computer can sit down and put together a neural network system that can address a lot of problems and be very effective at it very quickly. And the thought that comes to my mind, the question I want to ask is about the safety thing. There was a letter, a bunch of people signed it, and it served its purpose in the sense that in a communal way, we're thinking about it now. This, I, everyone can do this, including all the bad people. <laughs> I am not feeling that the fact that good people read that letter and mm -hmm. are responding to it means we've tackled any part of the bad AI problem that mm. we that we can have. And the speed with which they did that also told me that the problems, the employment problems or the safety problems and the benefits we're going to get from AI, we're going to get in three and five years, not 20. 
So uh, can we possibly be safe with this? Well, okay. Can, I can try to reassure you that you're not you're not in too much danger, but I could be wrong. Let me make the argument. <laughs> <laughs> That's not <laughs> very reassuring. <laughs> Let me make the argument and decide if it's convincing or not. Um, I agree with you that all the AI development is not just dependent on the availability and the ability to work with large data sets. There are certain problems you can tackle with artificial intelligence that don't require you to understand to mash, mash through large data sets. But the expertise required to do that, it's being concentrated in certain areas. So Google is taking up all the AI expertise, Facebook, all the, it takes, it's, it's, it, that labor force is extremely expensive. Not everybody can afford it. And pushing back on the issue of the requirement for big data to enable AI, yes, there are some problems that you can tackle without, without big data, but most of the problems that are unsolved, they do require large data sets. And if you think about the way the internet is structured, it's, Distributed in its use, but that data is being funneled into very specific, um, very specific channels. Again, Google, Facebook, Amazon; those are the guys who have all the data that they can use to train new AI. And uh, again, it's possible that there are open data sets that can enable um, adversarial AI, but. Uh, that's the best I can do in terms of reassuring <laughs> well, It's the unfortunate part of new technology is that there's a dual-use concern at all points, right? You have good actors and you have nefarious actors. Mm -hmm. And um, the difficult thing is if you don't have people who understand the, the base, enough people who understand the basics, basics of the technology, you really can't figure out nice ways to deter those nefarious actors. Um, and so this is, this is something we think about with lots of new technologies um, here in terms of just deterrence theory, but, um, but it's, it's a huge challenge um, because it's not just AI that, that we're worried about in these, in these new technology uh, spaces. It, it strikes me as a really interesting question because <clears throat> essentially you're asking, you know, is it, if we have this limited amount of labor pool, is it, is it good that the best of the best is going over to Tinder? to do their best work on mm. making that app better, right? <laughs> it's an interesting question. <laughs> we have a question in the center here. Good evening and thank you so much. I want to stick to the security issue, the checks and balances. Uh, just today we heard on the news that Yahoo got hacked a million people. A billion. A billion. billion. Excuse yeah. me, a billion people, which is outrageous. And I'd like to know, we've had already situations where we're worried about our own personal little itty-bitty you know, mm. work that we have on our computers, whether it's banking or credit cards and everything, and we're becoming more scared. And I want to know, are we studying this? Are, how are we going to block the future? Because for every intelligent person we have that much more intelligence, but it's all for deleterious purposes. So how are we, John Q. Public, going to be able to be protected? Right, Please. so it, um, one of the other technologies that I was kind of alluding to in, in the last answer is uh, cryptography. And cryptography is you know, allowing for secret sharing, um, keeping your data secure. Um, it, it's it's one of those technologies that also is very tough. Like if, if everyone has it, then you no one can know anything about anyone else without them letting them, right? So governments really don't want uh, high-scale cryptography out in the wild um, because if they want to know something about their people, um, which many governments do, um, then, then that would uh, prevent them from doing that. Cryptography is where your uh, one billion Yahoo hackers are... Yahoo people being hacked, excuse me. Uh, I don't want to say that Yahoo has one billion <laughs> hackers, uh, excuse me. Uh, they probably have a couple targets. dozen. But that, no, but that's where um, the cryptography is what's going to per protect your data there. Hmm. Um, the artificial intelligence um, aspect of this, uh, and this is, this is something that I was reading about just recently and really, really scary, um, is that two... Um, uh, two scientists were des designed uh, an AI um, to create a cryptographic system of its own so it could communicate mm. with itself um, without being hacked. Mm. Um, it did so, and the scientists couldn't 
undo it. <laughs> so, you, I mean, there's th these are some of the concerns, right? And it takes it to a whole nother level of wanting to keep yourself and your privacy. And privacy is a, I mean, yeah. that is a whole nother evening discussion um, is privacy. But um, privacy is super important. It, it revolves around cryptography, artificial intelligence, your data, all of that. It could also be interesting to think about gridlock in this situation. So you know how there is gridlock in the Senate. You can also talk, talk about gridlock between black hat and white hat. Um, there, is, there is a lot Define of... Define that. Uh, uh, black hat would be nefarious actors who have access to AI, mm -hmm. and white hat would be the opposite. Positive angels who have access to AI. Uh, there's a lot of uh, work recently on um, AI-enabled um, security systems, software security systems. We spoke to a couple of people in the Simon Tech on a spin-off who are creating AI that's able to better safeguard your computers. So it, it's not just one side of the equation that's getting more powerful. The good guys are getting more powerful too. Our next question's over here. <coughs> These are both very new questions and very old questions. Isaac Asimov years ago wrote the basic rules of robotics, including computers will not harm humans. Um, and we're moving in that last example of computers coming up with a code that only they can talk to each other leads to the question of ultimately computers deciding to optimize networks. And if humans are in the way of a network, let's say energy use, mm -hmm. um, a computer could determine to shut it down and we would have a difficult time dealing with it. So in the world of RAND and policy, the question I have is, in what space should we as RAND want to play in terms of suggesting um, basic algorithms or basic mm. code that needs to be embedded in future systems? And given the tension with the governments these days, whether we want the government to require that or not is a broad and interesting question as well. But trying to move from the, you know, the interaction we're talking about and think three, five years down the road, where can RAND be? What should be the policy of the governmental agencies around this? What does that mean in terms of code? I would think would be a very robust area to, to focus on mm. and where real value could be added or at least real dialogue could be started. Mm. We may or may not have a proposal written on that. <laughs> You're absolutely right. I mean, that is, that is that, I mean, the, these questions, every one of these questions is something that is unanswered, which is why this field is so interesting mm -hmm. from a policy perspective. But it is, it is a, it's a huge question. And why that's a huge question is also this question of um, when you have an, a learning algorithm, you don't necessarily have the final code. All you've done is taught it how to learn. Where do you put the safeguards? In the learning or in the final thing? It's not mm. quite clear. Our next question is over here. Um, is there a role for AI to police AI? Um, you had talked earlier about credit decision making and say it's a black box, we don't know, but the net result may be discrimination based on race, gender, religion, mm -hmm. which is unacceptable as a social policy. Should we have AI that checks to make sure that the AI results of the other system aren't uh, resulting in discriminatory uh, decision-making on credit or in other forms of life so that, the, that we don't have to cede everything to one AI system. We could have another AI system to essentially audit it, monitor it, and check it. So that, that, is, that is an approach that some are taking right now um, in terms of building kind of umbrella AIs to go and check the, the, the worker bee AIs mm. um, to make sure that what's coming out is, uh, is, is, is correct or correct enough, I guess. Mm. Um, my concern about that is just the complexity. Yeah. I mean, the complexity that you introduce there by putting in a second system or an overarching system that, that again, people don't understand and probably to a greater extent don't understand um, uh, is is problematic, but yes, it is. It is actually an approach being used today. Mm. It turns out that computer scientists do not like to throw away code, mm. and um, so so they they like to put uh, patches on top and add other layers on yeah. top. Okay, we have time for about two, maybe three more questions. Hi, this has all been very very interesting, but. One thing I'm wondering about when you talk about intelligence or artificial whatever is creativity. Is there any direction to create artificial intelligence to be really have a high IQ, come up with new ideas, how to cure cancer, how to increase how long we live, how to travel to outer space, hmm. new ideas? Are there any 
direction in that area? There's a lot of work on artificial intelligence art, um, on artificial intelligence art, art generated by artificial intelligence. But uh, it, it, creativity is a tough thing to create an automated system. What, what the art is basically doing is taking human specimens of art and imitating the style on a new canvas for a different type of topic. Mm -hmm. So in a sense, it's creative. And in another sense, it's not quite creative. Um, when I think about creativity, I think about frame breaking, breaking the context in which the system was originally created. That's what humans do well. We cross-pollinate different I ideas from different areas to create a new idea. Um, if you think about the way artificial intelligence is, is trained, that type of frame breaking is kind of is inherently harder to do because the frame is part of the, the learning process. Um, but then there can maybe in the next five, ten years there'll be new research showing how to do the, do those types of context breaking um, activities. We have a question over here. How big of a role does artificial intelligence play in financial markets? Hmm. I know that there are lots of quants in Wall Street doing work on algorithms applied to the financial markets, but I don't have any information on the extent to which it, it affects the markets. I don't know if you have information uh, on this. So this may or may not be surprising. They typically don't return our calls when, <laughs> <laughs> when, we, when we call to ask them that question. Um, but what we can tell is that if you look at the volume um, of the markets, that it is not humans pushing the button to make all those trades. So there are automated systems in place mm -hmm. um, making and queuing the trades. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, the extent to which they rely on them for the decisions on when they're going to execute um, is, is, is an unknown, and we could all speculate about that, but it's not something that is, um, that's shared, uh, that has been shared with us. Um, but, I mean, it's clear that, they're, that machines are moving, are, are moving the trades. Extending the question a bit further, it'll be even if the volumes are known, how much leverage do they have to destabilize the market? That's an interesting research question I'd yeah. love to tackle. Yeah. <laughs> we have time for one more question, and then perhaps... Our speakers can stay a little bit and answer any questions that we don't get to. Thank you. Um, I suppose uh, right now I'm more worried about human intelligence or the lack thereof <laughs> um, than artificial intelligence. And when you're speaking about jobs that can be taken over by AI, I'm thinking when can the president's job be taken over <laughs> by AI? And, you know, thinking very futuristically. Um, and, you know, perhaps if it was, he could then receive briefings by the Central Artificial Intelligence mm -hmm. Agency <laughs> without uh, having to um, turn those down. Um, can, is that something that could happen, that our countries could be ruled mm. by an artificial intelligent entity? And would it be any worse, given that <laughs> AI is flawed and humans are flawed? Well, I, I mean, I, I think I, I'm not, I'm not going to go as far as saying that a country will be uh, uh, overseen by AI, but I think it is a helpful... Um, a helpful thing context that we've we've placed it within is thinking of AI as this kind of decision-making ecology. Mm -hmm. um, so you have all these tools that help you make better decisions. Um, and I do think that uh, we will see, and I think it's already happening, we just don't know the extent uh, to which it is happening, um, decision-making at the highest levels of the globe um, mm -hmm. being directly informed by artificial intelligence mm -hmm. agents. Um, the concern I have there is just that there is a bias toward trusting what a machine tells you. Mm. And if you don't know what went into that machine in terms of what the assumptions were and what data actually it crunched, et cetera, then you could be making um, very, very um, problematic decisions. So to the extent that we um, ever rely on uh, AI, I would really like to see uh, a lot better documentation, um, but a lot better understanding of of what it is telling us um, mm. and, and why and what it's using to get to that end state. Mm. In, in the context of, um, of AI in an executive role, 
there's a researcher, a law researcher at um, UCLA who talked about algorithmic entities. These are essentially commercial entities that are devoid of any human interaction or any human constituents. They're entirely controlled by artificial intelligence systems. And it turns out that the legal regime allows for this because essentially across the states are competing for reducing the barriers to having companies be incorporated in those states. That has allowed a, a blind spot essentially that allows for the existence of entities that are fully algorithmic. Whether they actually do anything is a different thing, but in the sense of an executive being fully algorithmic, like the president, we can do that with companies already. So. All right, so thank you all very much for coming. As you can see, it was a... This presentation is provided as a public service by the RAND Corporation. To learn how you can attend programs at RAND, visit us online at www.rand.org events.